Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Carpenter. I'm Elizabeth Van Royen. And, and this, this is, is the, the Fire Starters, Starters Podcast. Podcast. One, two, three, four. In this episode, we'll talk about what external enablers are and what startup opportunities they could lead you to. But first, I'd like to introduce you our first guest, one of the sharpest and broadest minds I've ever met, Bruce Tullick. Bruce has more than three decades experience as an engineer and entrepreneur. He's deeply interested in fascinating problems that, if solved, would have a monumental impact around the world. Let's dive in. Welcome, Olivia and Bruce. Thank you, Alex. Nice to join you both. Excited to get the journey underway. Um, So, touching on those external enablers uh, to begin with, Bruce, what, what do you think would be... Uh, one that, that would be interesting or, or exciting for you at the moment. What is something that's changing in the outside world that's creating opportunities? So perhaps I should just give you a bit of context about where my background and expertise uh, is. Um, and it is in the world of startups. Um, but uh, um, it's primarily in the area of the application of technology to solving problems, but in particular, often, usually, hardware, um, that is physical products, pretty physical solutions. But a lot of what we do overlaps very much with uh, software and, uh, should we say, social solutions. Um, and so a lot of the areas of my experience and expertise are in solving hard problems. And by that, I mean the obvious, but also the fact that hardware is quite different from a software business. However, certain fundamentals are always the same. Um, A successful business knows its customer, knows its market. It understands uh, what it's, particularly when it's a startup, what its unfair advantage is in relation to others who might be seeking similar uh, opportunities. It's entrepreneurial, which means uh, it looks ahead and understands where a market's going to be, not necessarily just where it is right now. And it knows how to tell the story of what it is it is creating, producing, selling, the value it's it's intending to generate for the benefit of the stakeholders, which are first and foremost customers, because without them, no business will do anything useful. Um, And second, probably most important in the early stages is your sources of investment um, and the how thematic that investment is towards what the startup's doing versus more more general and there's a variety of different opportunities there Uh, and then of course fundamental to it all bringing it into picture and making it work is the team that you create to put that business uh, together and we're not just talking founders we're talking about key um, technology key uh, financial key uh, marketing and key ideas people for uh, developing a business. And so when you refer to in your question, um, opportunities for startups, um, and in particular, the external enablers, it's really going, it's not a question you can answer in the generic. It's something which is very dependent on individual businesses and the problems they're trying to solve. So if you were going to compare a med tech company with, uh, shall we say, a SaaS based social enterprise, the, the metrics, the time to market, the cost per customer acquisition, the time frame and runway required for investments are radically different. And therefore, what would be 
uh, enablers for businesses in those two different sectors would be quite different. And having said that, there's also in many cases a huge amount of overlap. For example, a medical uh, invention might be a piece of technology designed to be used by lots of people um, as a, uh, shall we, a health or a benefits in the field, in which case you're combining um, skills and expertise from both. So I'd say in terms of external enablers, um, in the fields in which I work, the ones that I see quite dramatic in their rise on the, the stage is the significant and increasing proactive support by governments through policy in relation to developing sovereign uh, manufacturing and technical capability development for, and I mean, there's a variety of reasons for that, um, sovereign risk, the perhaps the suspect nature of, of global trade, the need to onshore things that previously were very much offshore. This is not to say globalization goes out the window, far from it. But what it does say is that nations need to develop resilience in terms of the essentials they need. And if you look at uh, what happened in the pandemic in this country and America and elsewhere earlier in this stage, it was clear that none of those, neither of those countries had prepared for what was coming. And yes, it was a, an out of left field event in many, to many extents, but it demonstrated just how important we, we got this from some of our Chinese manufacturing partners who saw what was happening very early on and, and sent us gratis whole stacks of masks just uh, that we could uh, use locally. And that demonstrated that they had the capability to respond to that quickly. And they did. And, okay, there's a long story with, when you look at what's happening now. But the point I'm making is that in a, on a very small scale, that demonstrated through goodwill the ability to, to pick up unexpected events. But on a bigger scale and where national interests don't necessarily converge, I would say one of the biggest changes, one of the largest external enablers is going to be policy-based support for new business that is solving problems that uh, look at the risk that nations have in terms of providing for themselves and the essentials, uh, which of course would be energy, it would be food, it would be housing, it would be transport. Um, and you can see this already in um, announcements and investments by both federal and state governments here around supporting acceleration of R&D. The New South Wales government has a big policy um, in support of that. Um, the, they've been uh, in support of the startup ecosystem for some time, but the focus is now changing to be more direct. So you've got Sydney Startup Hub in Sydney, you've got Tech Central, which is being um, fleshed out now. You've got the Aerotropolis and the Western Sydney uh, precincts for specifically developing much more capable uh, industry support for advanced manufacture. Um, so I'd say in the fields that I work in, that's one of the big enablers and one of the businesses that I'm involved with, um, Jetpack Aviation. We're currently looking at taking advantage of some of those things to onshore stuff that we currently do um, in Europe and the US back to Australia. I mean, the company is founded by Australians. We would like to um, to move stuff back here, but we've been unable to because we haven't had the critical mass of industrial and infrastructure support to enable those sorts of things to be done here. But what we're seeing now is a concerted effort by governments uh, and primes in our industry, large international businesses, um, to establish a better ecosystem in support of those sorts of things. So what we're really talking about are 
policy developments in support of hardware-based businesses to develop an ecosystem sufficient to support them here. And this is not just doing what they do in China more cheaply or whatever. It's actually creating more value here and higher value-added um, techniques and, and uh, products and services. The other um, external enabler in the fields in which we operate is most definitely the technology itself. So if we're looking at how one used to make products, take something simple like um, a, a plastic enclosure for um, some product or maybe formed components of, I don't know, headphones or something that, that a startup might be designing. What we're now seeing, however, are much more sophisticated additive manufacturing techniques, particularly for physical devices. I mean, everyone knows about 3D printing, uh, but what you can actually do even in metal parts and indeed in our industry in aerospace uh, with Jetpack, there are lots of emerging technologies that don't need to be in a factory far away. They can be down the road. Um, and because they can be deployed to produce things at relatively low volume, but still um, acceptable uh, unit cost, uh, you can get businesses that can actually set up providing those services to a local ecosystem of other manufacturers. So I'd say um, the technologies around advanced manufacture, the application of more sophisticated AI and ML techniques to the development of new designs, the concepts of, um, uh, it's referred to sometimes as digital twin, which is a much tighter turnaround. Think of it like um, agile for manufacture, where you have a rapid testing and turnaround of prototypes and ideas, and you can tweak and change them. So hardware becomes more like a software development process. I'd say those two things combined are probably the biggest external enablers that we see in our industry at this point. And Bruce, do you mind if I just jump in and ask a question? Um, traditionally, it's been a little bit more difficult for hardware uh, and more capital intensive businesses to raise capital in the early stages. Um, and it sounds like there's going to be a lot more funding from governments. Do you think uh, from a private capital perspective, there will be more shifts from individual investors and venture capital funds to put more capital into this industry? Uh, it's hard to say at this point. It really, like, if you think about the startup uh, ecosystem around software. It's all about really rapid customer acquisition and growth. You then produce a lot of revenue. You might be producing loss, but you can see a turnaround point at some point in the future. Uh, with hardware businesses, it's quite different um, because you have a lot of upfront uh, costs. And then, of course, you have unit costs. So scaling actually scales up your cost base in a way that doesn't happen with SaaS business or software businesses. Your question, though, more relates to what does a startup business, what can a startup business expect from uh, venture capital and what kind of venture capital um, to, is it becoming more readily available, more readily accessible? And I'd say, yes, if you leverage the um, opportunities that governments are beginning to provide on a more long-term sustainable basis, if you look at the um, Australian Space Agency and the SmartSat CRC, you look at uh, dollar for dollar halving the investment cost to 50 cents in the dollar for those businesses, then there is um, more opportunity now than there was before, certainly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, leveraging a combination of the uh, the capital that's technically free um, or out there to help grow businesses and then using that private capital to extend right. that. Yeah. 
I think you've touched on so many points. I'm uh, flabbergasted as always of like the breadth. So you've covered um, the impact of, of 3D printing on hardware, iterative cycles uh, in order to achieve better uh, better outcomes for customers. And then the impact that AI is going to have on the design and development of hardware, which actually just makes me think, I mean, I know... Um, uh, uh, Mark Andreessen was his famous thesis was software eating the world, and actually, I, I think there could be a, a thing where actually with AI empowered three D printing hardware could be next to eat the world. So if you if you think about the implications of national security, as as we've touched on as well, and national food security, and all of these kinds of things, it's just there's so many opportunities. I'm curious from if we take hardware out of it for yep. a second, where do you see the the AI having coming in and, and creating opportunities that that have yet to be explored because often AI is the big barrier is you need lots and lots of data and so from a startup perspective it's it's very difficult to get enormous amounts of data and everyone's trying to eat as much data as they can so how do you see AI enabling you know these these lower entry uh, opportunities um, in the short term by which I mean three to five years. Uh, almost exclusively by leveraging the API and stack offerings from large AI providers from Microsoft down. Um, by plugging into, in effect, off-the-shelf solutions that are provided by much larger research-based and corporate-based solutions, AI is not a simple thing to do and get right. Um, but when you have got it right, it's in amazing in its transformative capability. And so I would say uh, AI is a, an enormous opportunity, a pretty large threat uh, and a potential Faustian pact for uh, startups. But what I also know from other work that we've been doing with Bitscope um, is that Microsoft are working with partners like ourselves and many others to offer through their cloud offering um, AI solution stacks where it's not just the AI engines that run the stuff, it's actually training data sets or even fully trained models for certain applications. So as a startup, I wouldn't propose that you would try and build that stuff from scratch unless you, you really like headaches. Um, uh, but it, what it does mean is that when I come back to my earlier term, referring to it as a Faustian pact, because it is um, quite a challenge to avoid capture by a monolith, Microsoft, for example, um, in deploying these sorts of solutions, but time to market often demands that you do. In the case of the sort of stuff that we work in in hardware, uh, maybe that's a little less of a less of a capture. You have other problems to deal with, but not that one so so much. So I would say I'm very excited by the prospects of. Um, AI and ML, but I'm not excited by the prospects of the lack of transparency around it and the potential negatives, both social and economic, uh, that arise from its misuse. Also curious, I have to ask the quick follow-up question of how much of the software engineering skill set do you feel is, you know, get being degraded? Because I feel like if if you were without those tools and without even like open source GitHub, 
uh, repositories, you needed to be able to write everything from scratch. And then, oh, well, you can just copy libraries and then you can just get AI to write part of it for you now. Do you see that trend continuing or do you think that they're just getting, you can become more and more niche as a software engineer and, and still utilize all these tools? Um, you can, but boy, does it take discipline. So a way I would describe it is that in the world of engineering from which I come, uh, electrical engineering, uh, digital signal processing, applying mathematics to create physical hardware that does things versus, uh, shall we say, building SaaS platforms, particularly those that deal with lots of interacting complex entities like, you know, people, um, nonlinear, um, very unpredictable in what they do. When you think of uh, platforms um, like Twitter, for example, um, the the challenge, there's two words to describe it. I would say hardware businesses can sometimes be, all businesses can be, but hardware business can be complicated. But the kind of business that uh, we're talking about here and when you're looking at things like software engineering for dealing with highly non unpredictable nonlinear entities like people, they're complex. Complicated versus complex. Complicated is something that can be broken down and understood and pieced together. An airline, uh, rather an aircraft is complicated, uh, but it is very predictable in its individual parts. It's testable, it's reproducible. Um, a, uh, a social media engine or something like Twitter or Facebook or these sorts of things we're all familiar with is complex. And the kind of problems you have to solve are probably insoluble. AI is probably one of the best ways of applying and, and iteratively developing solutions for complex problems, but they're not provable. I prefer provable solutions for things that, for example, carry me from one side of the planet to the other without crashing. So I want, I want, um, deterministic reproducibility and i want to have assurances and we have been able to develop very complicated systems that can guarantee those things but from a startup perspective getting back to your original point about coding discipline uh nothing beats understanding if you're writing software um data structures algorithms how they come together to solve problems then compared to cutting and pasting or having an ai uh, give you a chunk of code that you don't really understand how it works, but you know it seems to solve the problem until it doesn't. So, uh, you know, I come from a hardware and a, a iterative design and a reproducible testing regime where every bit wants to be able to be tested. And if something in the field proves to fail in a way we hadn't tested for, you put in a test. Then standard software development practice. I think some of those practices are being undermined by the new methodologies of solving problems uh, there's whole movement of no code uh, software development and ai generated code in a sense it's good because it means people who have a creative or a solutions focus but not necessarily a technological capability to do it can prototype things can get things out the door quickly can run a proof of concept can demonstrate can test with customers but when it comes to actually engineering a, a robust solution you've got to take your time you've got to be methodical um, you have to spend the time proving what it is you, you, that your solution will not fail at when it needs to definitely not fail. And Bruce, do you see um, AI being used universally across industries in the future, or do you still see there being some resistance across different industries uh, to adopt the technology? Um, well, 
in the kind of society that we live in and in fact the way the world works there will be a powerful financial incentive to adopt it because if you don't you won't survive that's my reading of it at the end of the day um, the competitive advantage that you will not have if you don't deploy it in most lines of business will mean that you won't be in those businesses forever or even a particularly long time having said that there are, as I've alluded to earlier, I believe some significant risks, particularly when you start applying. Let's just say, for example, um, AI technologies to life-saving medical equipment. Okay, there's a, a, a direct uh, consequence which could be quite negative if that AI makes a bad or, dare I suggest, rogue decision. Um, similarly, as we're already seeing, um, weapons technologies and the uh, shall we say, the ethical balance that perhaps once exists when you put meat in the firing line versus just machinery, um, as in soldiers versus just drones. There's some amazing stuff happening there technologically, and the technologist in me goes, wow, look at that, look what we can do now. Uh, but the ethicist in me and basically just the humanist in me says, look, we can do anything we want. The question really should be, should we be doing it? And I think there are questions we need to seriously ask ourselves as a society and decide what sort of limits we might place on that or regulation to slow down the rate of deployment of these things until we can actually get a handle on what the consequences might be. Mm. And are there any particular industries that you think um, would really benefit or would have incredibly exciting um, opportunities come from adopting AI? Uh, certainly. Um, probably in a general sense, those all those areas that are of the, in the realm of the complex um, as opposed to the complicated. Um, I think, uh, just referring to the industry I just mentioned, medical health technology, I would say uh, the human uh, biosystem um, is extraordinarily complicated and medical science knows what it knows on the basis of extensive tests and trials and experiments, basically, to then develop um, rules of engagement for medicines or medical technology or whatever. And it's a very long-winded, it's a very expensive process, uh, mining and, and divining the data that comes out of medical trials for new vaccines, for example, is a very long-winded and expensive process. But often you'll find that in that application, um, the application of AI and ML can rapid, can dramatically improve or s solve problems that are complex to a statistically significant degree of confidence, 99.95%, say, um, that I would say in the area of quality of life, in the area of health, um, probably also in the area of uh, modelling and determining the impact of human activity on biosphere, on, on biological systems, um, are areas where we're going to see uh, artificial intelligence really accelerate for the good if we manage it right. Um, in a way that previously would have been unthinkable. I like that. That's gotten me <laughs> excited. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Bruce. Um, I think this this area is is an uh, 
is an industry that can be incredibly transformed um, if there's uh, if there's more technology and, and just more innovation that's put into it because I think it is a really um, a really old school uh, you know way of operating and I think there is so much that can be applied to improve it and to improve improve productivity and therefore um, obviously increase uh, you know the benefit for everyone but um, it is something that I think we should definitely yeah, explore. I'd like say more that, that, that I'd be interested to listen to if you can get some people who are. Um, uh, not just uh, economists and financial people, but um, social people in the social sciences and studying human behaviour uh, and looking at those sorts of things. Very interesting because I think it could yield enormous benefits for us. I can guarantee you it's going to keep coming up because it's one of my areas yeah. of interest. So, I'm, but yeah, I mean, uh, were there any uh, last comments? I mean, really, this this whole series is is about trying to excite people for the future so that they actually are part of building it rather than just consumers. Absolutely. Um, so we're wanting we're wanting to try and give them the excitement and the, the confidence to take a step, whatever that step might be, just something so that they're participating, not consuming the world around them. Um, is, is there anything else that you'd want to leave with them uh, to, to get them to take okay. that step? I think the simple thing is if you are, an aspiring founder or you are a founder, um, the first thing to say when someone asks you a question, can you do it? Yes. And you go away and you think about how you're going to solve that problem because so long as you're not being a complete idiot, there will be a solution one way, even if it's in redefining the problem that's been asked or the question that's been asked. And I would say that every risk or threat on the other side of it's a coin has an opportunity. And we're all staring down the barrel of what looks like an enormous global reset. And the, I think it's true that access to VC and funding for startups is going to become a lot harder. But what that also means is a lot of the potential bloated competition that might otherwise squash you goes away, dies itself. And it's like a rebirth or re, restart opportunity. And as a startup, particularly if you're young, you're in the box seat for this. And I would say the opportunities if you are willing to say yes and grasp them and demonstrate all, all the time, little incremental steps, but within the context of a bigger vision, if you operate ethically and if you always keep, keep yourself aware of the big picture, you will ultimately succeed. And if you're young, you have the opportunities. You don't necessarily have you know, the mortgage, the family, whatever. You have that opportunity. Seize it now because... If you seize it now and you are then, it doesn't mean you might not be the next Elon Musk, but who necessarily wants to be that? I'd say um, every threat or risk is an opportunity. Lean into the solutions after saying, yes, I can do it, and then work out, build a team. It's all about relationships and building a team to realize your dream or realize the idea that you have. Amazing. Better consensus as well. Absolutely. Be, uh, very yeah. helpful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, that, that's something which, but that's part of being human, I think. Um, and so learning to deal with that is, uh, you know, it, it will give you a significant advantage if you can do that well. 100%. Th thank you so much, Bruce. Not um, at all. It's been fun. been an absolute pleasure. I, I'm sure this is the first of many times that we will uh, try and wrap <laughs> you in. Well, very appreciated. Um, it's been great to talk to you guys. And look, it's an area, obviously, I'm quite passionate about being involved in the startup space, um, more of a mentoring role these days. Uh, but really, it's um, I think it is what will build our future. And so I would strongly, anyone who's got the slightest inclination to try and do this sort of stuff, particularly, as I say, if you're young, 
go for it lean into it do it you can make your dreams turn into something real i love it thank you very much guys we'll speak again bye 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 Hey, thanks for listening. If this episode fanned your flame, we'd love to help. Just go to guildofentrepreneurs.com. We are a decentralized community ensuring that every entrepreneur is supported. And we'd love to see you there. Until next time. Bye. Bye.